going to be Acts chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 21 to 28. First, I'm going to have entitled, An Open Door for the Gentiles. I should follow along as I read. It says, After they had preached the gospel in that city, that was Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every uh, church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through uh, Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And uh, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived, they gathered the church together, and they began to report all the things that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. That's a children's song that we teach to our Sunday school kids. But Abraham was 75 years old, and his wife 65, and they were still childless. But then God took Abraham outside, and he said, Now look into the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How many sons did Father Abraham have? Well, he had Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah, but a lot of people forget that after Sarah died, Abraham remarried a woman named Keturah, by whom he had six more sons. Zimri, Jokshan, Midian, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Abraham had eight sons, but the promise was that he would also have many, many descendants. Well, who are they? Well, the people of Israel who descended from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes. Through his other sons came the Arab tribes that have spread across much of the Middle East. So today there's 13 million Jews in the world, and 464 million Arabs. Not bad for a guy who didn't have his first son until he was 86, and his second one when he was 100. But you know, when the kids sing that song about Father Abraham saying of his sons that I am one of them, and so are you, they're not claiming to be either Jews or Arabs who've descended biologically from the great patriarch. Instead, what they're claiming is that they're Abraham's children by faith because we believe in Abraham's God. You see, when God first called Abraham, he told him to leave his home and to go out to a land that he would give him. God promised to bless Abraham and make him a blessing. And he said, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, God's intention in working through Abraham and the nation of Israel, which came from him, was not only to bring blessings to them, but blessing to all the nations of the world. Through his offspring, and particularly one offspring, the Messiah, God intended to open a door of faith to the Gentile nations of the world. Now that this door would be open to the Gentiles was, uh, so that they would someday come to trust in Abraham's God was prophesied in a number of passages, including the one from our call to worship. There shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles and in him the Gentiles will hope. Now the early Jewish followers of Jesus heard him give the command in the Great Commission when he told them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. But they were slow to extend that witness past the Jews. 
But after a Gentile church was established in Antioch, that church sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey with the hope of opening a door of faith to other Gentiles as well. So in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we have the events of that first missionary journey recounted. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas are heading back to Antioch, to the city from which they had been sent out. So in this section, we see Paul and Barnabas revisiting the cities where they had planted churches and then returning to Antioch to report the great things that God had accomplished through them. Because I want us to look to God to do a good work through us in supporting missions and also in our own witness to those around us, we want to look at this passage this morning and ask God for help. Father, I need to pray for grace and mercy as we look at this, speak to our hearts and transform our lives so that we can be pleasing to you and find great joy in all that you do. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we can outline this section with four headings. We see uh, with Paul and Barnabas that first they're revisiting the churches. Revisiting churches, that's 21. Secondly, strengthening to the disciples. Strengthening disciples, that's 22. Third, they were appointing elders, that's 23. And find, finally, they were returning home, and that's 24 to 28. Revisiting churches. You know, when companies invest in new plants and new technology, they're always concerned about their ROI, their return on investment. The United States government pressured U.S. car makers to uh, invest billions of dollars in developing electric cars. You know, do away with gas engines so we can keep the polar ice caps from melting and that way we can save the planet. General Motors has recently announced that they're shutting down production for its electric vehicles. Yeah, you can make as many electric cars as you want, but if nobody wants to buy them, your return on investment is not going to be very high. Now, I don't know if Paul and Barnabas thought in those terms of return on investment when they did their mission works, but they certainly invested time and toil and blood and sweat and tears as they labored to spread the gospel message. You know, in results or in advertisements uh, for companies, sometimes they say results may vary. Well, for these two apostles, the results did vary from city to city. I mean, when they preached in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, which, by the way, is a different Antioch than the city they were sent out from, the early returns were looking good. I mean, a number of Jews believed in the first uh, Sabbath that they preached there, and even those who didn't said, hey, come back and speak to us again. But the problem is when they did come back the next week, they were joined by a bunch of raw pagans, and the Jewish people were there started to get jealous and confront Paul and... Uh, dispute with them the things that he was teaching. Well, as a result of that, a large number of Gentiles actually came to faith. Well, the next city they went to, Iconium, here the rate of return was really good because it says a large number of both Jews and Gentiles were saved. I mean, it's nice when you open up your 401k statement and you find out that all your funds made money. Well, but while they had a good return for their investment, they also saw significant opposition. I mean, the Jews uh, stirred up the leading citizens of that city, and so they were planning on stoning the apostles, but our guys escaped, and they went on to Lystra. When they were there, they performed a miracle in healing a man who was born lame. And the people who were there were impressed with it, so impressed that they thought that Paul and Barnabas must be Greek gods. Well, they changed their mind on that in a short time, and so that decided to stone him, and after doing so, they brought Paul out and they dropped his body outside the city. But then he twitched and got up and went back to the city, and then the next day he went to Derby. You know, when we scatter a gospel seed, it's God who determines the results. I mean, sometimes it brings an immediate and abundant harvest, but other times the growth is slow and the harvest seems meager, especially considering the amount of time and work we've put in. I mean, think about it. Both Korea and Japan have had missionaries sent to them 
over the last couple hundred years. What's been the return of investment in Korea? Well, today, 16% of all Koreans identify as evangelical Christians. For a historically Buddhist nation, that's very high. Japan, on the other hand, less than one-half of 1% 1 of Japanese are Protestants, and of those, only half of them identify as evangelicals. There's one evangelical church in Japan for every 34,000 people. In Saudi Arabia, 4.4% of the population identify as Christian, but almost all of those are foreign workers who are stationed there. There's hardly any Saudi Christians. Legally, you're not allowed to be one. Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country. It's a birthplace of Islam. But Iran is also an Islamic country run by Muslim clerics. But Christianity is exploding in growth there. Percentage-wise, Iran has the fastest growing church in the world today. Well, when it comes to a spiritual harvest, the Bible says one plants and another waters, but it's God who gives the growth. Many missionaries have labored long and hard without seeing much return on their investment. Sometimes most of that return comes after they die and are off the scene. We can't make the church grow, but we can plant and water and weed and hope and wait for God to bring growth. Well, Paul and Barnabas wanted to see how the spiritual seed that they had planted was faring and what kind of return on investment they had. So it says in verse 21, it says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. That brings us to our second point there. Visiting each of these cities, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. You know, uh, years ago, people didn't go to fitness centers or worry much about getting enough exercise. Now, I would guess that was probably because a lot of people had hard, physically demanding jobs, so they didn't really have to worry about it that much. But today, I mean, people join gyms and buy exercise machines, uh, some hire personal trainers, or they do CrossFit. And I, you can find all kinds of magazines that will talk about your uh, health and exercise and diet. There's Men's Health magazine. Women's Health Magazine. You know, when I wrote that down at that point in my sermon, I thought to myself, I wonder if there's a Dog's Health Magazine. Well, there's not, but there is one called Animal Wellness. <laughs> but I noticed that for both men and women, there are a lot of magazines about physical health, but I only actually found one about spiritual health. That was for women. But it was all about New Age spirituality with articles like Catching Magic, The Dalai Lama's Emotional Hygiene, Finding Oneness, Embracing your truth, why we need angels and how to create them, and 10 affirmations for releasing guilt. Now the truth is we don't create angels, God created them. And the only way we can have our guilt released is by having Jesus forgive it through his death on the cross. Well, Paul and Barnabas weren't looking to strengthen the disciples physically, but spiritually. Not their bodies, but their souls was their chief concern. And so we're told that they did this by encouraging them. Now, the Oxford Dictionary defines encouragement as the action of giving someone support, confidence, or hope. Christian counselor Larry Crabb wrote a book a number of years ago called Encouragement, the Key to Caring. Now, when unbelievers try to encourage one another, they tend to focus on the individual and tell them things like this. Well, I'm sure you can do this. You're so good, so smart, so strong, so resourceful. If you go up and down the halls and look at the lockers, there's things like that written all over the place, isn't it? You know, all about their self-esteem. You know, they try to pump up the person so that they can dig deep down within and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But when Christians encourage one another, we turn a person's focus and gaze away from themselves to the God. 
We try to relieve their fears and put courage in them by pointing out how good and how great and how powerful and how wise God is and how concerned he is for their welfare. And we point to the hurting person to the promises of God, which they can cling to. Promises like Isaiah 26.3 that says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Or Isaiah 41.10 that says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Or Deuteronomy 31.8 that says, The Lord himself will go before you and be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Or Philippians 4, 6-7, that says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, with prayer and petitions and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, one of the things that Paul wanted to put courage in the believers about was the persecution that they were facing. He said here that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in this world you're going to have tribulation. He said, but take courage because I've overcome the world. John 16, 32. Now the Greek word for tribulation here is thipsis, which means pressures or trials, difficulties, hardships, afflictions. You know, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes said that man's life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Job said man is born to trouble. As sparks fly upward. You see, we live in a fallen world that's been cursed by God. And Christians are not exempt from the effects of that curse. Just like unbelievers, we grow old, get sick, and eventually die. We get cancer, suffer accidents. Unbelieving parents sometimes have to bury their own children, but so do Christian parents as well. All that's true, but I, I think what Paul's focused on here in tribulation is the sufferings that Christians experience because they're Christ's followers. You know, Paul Brand and Philip Yancey a number of years ago wrote a book entitled Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. Well, understandably so. But according to the Bible, suffering as Christians actually is a gift from God. Writing to the Philippians, Paul said this, For it's been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you, have saw, which you saw in me, and now here to be in me, Philippians 1, 29-30. Now, Paul was worried about the Christians in Thessalonica, how they were holding up after they had endured persecution. Writing to them, he said this, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for these. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear the tempter may have tempted you and our labor had been in vain. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5. Writing to Christians who are suffering in another part of the world, Peter reminds them of the great things that God has waiting in store for them. He said this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if necessary, you're distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fighting men from the sky, fearless men who jump and die, men who mean just what they say, the brave men 
of the green beret, silver wings upon their chests. These are men, America's best. One hundred men will test today, but only three win the green beret. Makes you want to march, doesn't it? You know, the army doesn't pin those silver wings upon your chest until you prove yourself. And we have to prove our faith to be real, genuine gold, not fool's gold, before we enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul told the Thessalonians that the persecution they were enduring was so that they would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are indeed suffering. Well, with some professed Christians, their faith cannot get past and stand that stress test. Jesus told that parable of the sower and the soils. He said that there were some so uh, seeds that landed on the shallow soil. And it said it grew up quickly enough, but it had no root. So when the sun came out and scorched it, it withered and it died. Jesus said that's the person who hears the gospel and receives it with great joy. But because they have no real root of faith, when times of persecution come, they give it up and fall away. You know, so much of the Christian life comes down to simple perseverance, stick to itness. I came across a number of quotes about perseverance. How about this one from Margaret Mitchell? Hardships make or break people. Hardships make or break people. Or George Moore, who said, a winner is just a loser who tried one more time. Or Theodore Roosevelt, who said this, courage is not having the strength to go on. It's going on when you don't have any strength. Or Newt Gingrich, who said, Perseverance is the hard work you do after you get tired of doing the hard work you've already done. <laughs> or as a Japanese proverb says, Fall seven times, but stand up eight. Proverbs 24.16 says, For though the righteous fall seven times, they will rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Psalm 37, 23 to 24 says this, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. You see, even secular people understand the need for perseverance to succeed in life, but the Bible makes it clear that we have to persevere in our Christian life if we would enter the kingdom of God. Now, speaking in the context of suffering, persecution, Jesus said, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Hebrews 10.36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, then you will receive what was promised. Paul wanted to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And at the same time, he was revisiting these churches and strengthening disciples. He was also appointing elders. This is verse 23. By the way, a careful study of the New Testament will show that the term pastor, shepherd, elder, and overseer Sometimes bishops are all terms for the same office. By the way, nowhere in the Bible is the term priest used for a leader of the church. There were priests in the Old Testament because they offered up animal sacrifices. But in the New Testament, Jesus is called our high priest because he opened up, or offered up the ultimate sacrifice as a sin offering. In the Catholic Church, they call their leaders priests because they believe that in the Mass, Jesus is being uh, re-sacrificed, represented. Uh, his body and blood is offered up again. But it says in Hebrews 10.14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being sanctified. Now, different churches have different denominational structures, organizational hierarchies. In the Catholic Church, you have the priest. And above that, you have a bishop. Above that, you have an archbishop. Above that, a cardinal. And over the top, you have the pope. In Eastern Orthodox churches, you've got a priest. By the way, they can marry in Eastern Orthodox churches. But the bishop above them cannot. 
Above that is an archbishop or a metropolitan and then an archbishop and then finally a patriarch. Or in the Anglican church you have priests and then bishops and then archbishops. But uh, the head of the whole church in England is who? It's the king of England or the queen. Try to square that with scripture. A non-clergy as the head of the church? A woman as the head of the church? Actually, when you read through the scripture, you'll find that the pattern of church government is quite consistent. Luke tells us here that Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders uh, for them in every city, having prayed with fasting and then commended them to the Lord whom they had believed in. In Titus chapter 1, Paul writes this. He said, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders as I directed in every city. You see, elders, plural, in every city. Elders in every church. The biblical pattern for governance is to appoint a group of godly men who will share the responsibility of teaching the people and watching over their souls. Paul goes on in that letter to Titus to give the qualifications. He says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of but one wife, by the way, that presupposes he's going to be married, doesn't it? The Catholic Church forbids the priest from marry. The Bible indicates that the pastors are expected that they would be married. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach, God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what's good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Titus 1, 6-9. He doesn't have to be a CEO with an MBA. A pastor doesn't have to have a marketing degree or be a great entertainer. They, don't need to be, they need to be godly men who know the scripture and who can accurately and carefully teach it to others. And of course, if we have elders or pastors who have a responsibility to teach the word, doesn't that imply that you have a responsibility to learn it? How serious are you in that task? You know, the more of God's word you take in, the more of it you learn and apply, the more you'll grow in your faith. It's really just that simple. That brings us to our last point, though, returning home. This is verses 24 to 28. Now, having finished revisiting the churches that they had planted, Paul and Barnabas headed back to Antioch where they had set out. It says this in verse 24. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelaide. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had also been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. Now, it's fun to go fishing, but it's also fun to come home and show everybody the fish you caught. Guys around here shoot a 10-point buck, and then they drive around with a back of, in the back of a truck for the next two or three weeks. Now we take pictures with our cell phones to show everybody. Well, Paul didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have a camera of any kind. All he could do is come back and recount the great things that God had done for them. And it says in verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done for them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. You know, they say a sorrow shared is half the sorrow. And a joy shared is twice the joy. We can and we should praise and glorify God in private but it's even more important to come together and celebrate him in public with other believers. Yes, there were difficulties and setbacks and disappointments for Paul and Barnabas. But how could they not be excited at this point? 
I mean, the promise that God had made to Abraham 18 centuries earlier was beginning to be fulfilled in and through their ministries. A door of faith was being opened to the Gentiles. Now, next time we're back in the book of Acts, we're going to see how the church struggled with the, just how much this door should be open to the Gentiles and on what basis they can come in. But for right now, I think we should close by drawing several lessons from this text. Here's the first one. Every Christian needs to be involved in getting the gospel out to the nations. Every Christian needs to be involved in getting the gospel out to the nations. John Piper was right when he said, when it comes to the Great Commission, there's only three types of people. Those who go, those who send, and those who are disobedient. I would encourage you to keep up with what our missionaries are doing. That's why we put notes in the bulletin and emails that come. Find out what they need prayer for and then actually pray for them. Encourage them when they come back to report what's going on in their ministries. Second thing I think we need to say, though, is that every Christian needs to be busy witnessing themselves. I mean, you might not be able to go overseas, but you can go across the street or across the lunchroom or across the office to share your faith with others. All Christians like to tell people about Jesus. We just need to look for the opportunities and have the boldness to do so when they come. Here's the last thing, though, I want to say. Don't get discouraged. Yes, there's disappointments and setbacks and heartbreaks. Most people are not going to want to hear the gospel. And even for those who do and embrace it, you'll see a number of them later on give it up. And we're certainly frustrated when others don't take their faith as seriously as we think they should. But whatever anyone else does, make up your mind that you're going to take your faith seriously. I mean, you only have so much time to serve Jesus in this life. The weeks and the months and the years slip by. I cannot believe I'm 60 years old. I don't know how that happened. The Bible says to redeem the time for the days are evil. And honestly, don't most of us waste a whole lot of time just in sheer entertainment? One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Live for Christ. And in the end, you will not be disappointed. May God give you the grace to do so. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we do need grace to live the way we should because life is short and because opportunities pass in a very short time. So Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy. We pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to what we've heard today and then transform us through it so that we can find great joy in your Son, Jesus Christ, and proclaim him to all who need to hear it. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand with me. We're going to sing together to close. 350.